From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Hosting the Olympics is an honour that cities have competed for for over a century. It's seen as recognition of a nation's economic superiority and a source of national pride. But is winning the bid to host the Games really worth it? As some cities are finding, dealing with the International Olympic Committee can leave them financially and legally devastated. Today, national correspondent for the Saturday paper, Mike Seckham, on the power of the IOC and its vice president, John Coates. It's Tuesday, August 3. That the Games of the 35th Olympiad are awarded to Brisbane, Australia. (laughs) It's very exciting news for Australians. So to everybody up there in Queensland... It's a win for all Queenslanders. It's a win for all those in South... Mike, Brisbane has won the right to host the 2032 Olympics, but when that announcement was made last week, it was kind of overshadowed by some other things that the head of the Olympic Committee said. So can you describe what happened? Yes, that's right. There was this exchange between John Coates, who's the president of the Australian Olympics Committee, and Anastasia Palaszczuk, who's the Premier of Queensland. You are going to the opening ceremony... I'm still the deputy chair of the Canada Leadership Group. And um, what what happened was Coates very forcefully insisted that Palaszczuk was going to attend the opening ceremony in Tokyo. And so far as I understand that um, there will be an opening and a closing ceremony in 2032 and all of you have got to get along there and understand the, um, the traditional parts of that what's involved in an opening ceremony. So no, none of you are staying behind and hiding in your rooms, all right? And that there was no way in the world that, that Palaszczuk was going to, as he put it, hide in her room because she'd suggested that she might watch the opening ceremony on television given the pandemic. And the exchange was, well, was arrogant to say the least. Never been to an opening ceremony at Olympic Games, have you? You don't know the protocols. Very important lesson for everyone here. And this is an arrogance that, that's born of power. The power which the Australian Olympic Committee has and the International Olympic Committee has and, and of course, of which John Coates also has a large measure. Mm, Okay, so tell me a bit more about that, about John Coates. Who is he and and what sort of power does he have? Well, Coates was born in Sydney 71 years ago. His father was a lawyer and Coates became one too. He was always keen on sport from a young age, but he was born with congenitally dislocated hips, which prevented him from becoming a serious competitor. So he became an administrator instead. And he's he's become very good at it, I might say. He was the president of the AOC, the Australian Olympic Committee, for 31 years, for three decades, which is an extraordinary run when you think about it, and vice president of the International Olympic Committee, which is the body that governs the Olympics and decides where they're held. He's been on that body for, for nearly a decade. So um, to understand his power, I guess it's it's worth going back and having a look at what happened the last time Australia held the Games back in 2000? The, the winner is Cindy. Australia. Oh, what a great moment. Money extremely well spent. The Prime Minister. The is... official contract will be signed. What they have to do now, IOC. ladies and gentlemen, is, uh, is sign the contracts, basically so signing a billion dollars of Australian money, Bruce, for these Games in the year 2000. It's going to give us all so much to look forward to. Okay, what happened? Well, 
He developed a, a reputation as a fearsome negotiator. John Coates has turned Sydney 2000 into a gold mine for the AOC and himself into the key power broker of the games. You know, who squeezed everything he could out of the New South Wales government and out of the city of Sydney. Australia's own Lord of the Rings and master Olympic dealmaker has found himself centre stage, fighting accusations that he bought the Games. But the real battle over the Sydney Olympics has been a ruthless power struggle behind the scenes. And made sure, of course, that, that they were on the hook if anything went wrong. In 1993, John Coates talked $135 million out of the Keating government for a program aimed at ensuring a record gold medal tally in 2000. I, I spoke to Bob Carr about this, who was, was Premier through much of the run-up to the Sydney Games, and, and he compared Coates to the National Secretary of a large union, who he says, you know, maintains his control by very astute patronage, by keeping the sporting organisations, who are his constituency, in line by sharing with them the spoils. And uh, I spoke also to Carr's treasurer at the time, Michael Egan, who had a number of run-ins with the AOC and with Coates at that time. It's a film Coates actually uh, served me uh, for defamation because you might remember they kicked up a big fuss about the bed tax. One, for example, was over a 10% bed tax that the state imposed on Sydney hotel accommodation to try and claw back a bit of the costs of the Games. And... The AOC was very unhappy about that. And at one stage at a media conference, Egan suggested that Coates had a conflict of interest in, in his opposition because in the past he'd had involvement in, in a hotel development. I had a press conference, but I uh, casually mentioned that um, I thought John Coates had a uh, conflict of interest because I remember as a young backbench member of the lower house, he uh, and a few others came to see me about the proposal they had for building a hotel accommodation on the Cornell Peninsula, and I was the... Even more acrimonious, though, the most acrimonious bit of the lot, I suppose, was a dispute over the structure of the Olympic Organising Committee, which Egan describes as a 50-50 joint venture between the, the Olympics organisation and the state. Um, that gave Coates essentially a veto power over line items in the budget. And he told me that they got to the stage where the AOC, quote, wouldn't let the government do anything, unquote. Um, so they had to buy them out. That wound up costing the state close to $100 million. And um, that taught me that you never go into a, a, a joint venture with anyone because they can stop you doing anything. And uh, we got to a stage where the AOC wouldn't let the government do anything. Um, and we thought, well, you know, what's going to happen here? We, you know, we've got an Olympics coming up right. um, and nothing's happening. So we had to buy them out. And Egan told me that it taught him two things. One, that you never go into a joint venture with anyone. And two, that John Coates was a very tough negotiator. Okay, so John Coates, a, a tough negotiator, a good operator, you don't want, really want to be up against him um, in these kinds of discussions, but his power is really underpinned by the weight of the institutions that he works for, the Australian Olympic Committee and the, the International Olympic Committee. So can you tell me a bit more about them and the, the sway that they have? The IOC is an independent, international, non-government organisation. It has no obligation, essentially, to listen to anyone other than themselves. 
one expert I spoke to said they make their own rules and they govern their own rules. So by dint of these self-determined rules laid down in contract law, backed by immense commercial power, they're, they're in a position to bully any host city, and they do. The way they do this is, is through ironclad contracts that favour the IOC over the host city, which leave the hosts liable to the costs if things run over budget or otherwise go wrong, and, and lock up for the IOC the benefits from things like broadcasting rights, merchandising, intellectual property. You know, in a nutshell, they ensure that the IOC owns the games, but the hosts pay for them. We'll be back in a moment. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Mike, it sounds like the IOC has pretty much total control over the organisation of the Olympics. So what does it mean then if a host city wants to get out of hosting for whatever reason, maybe extenuating circumstances, for example, a global pandemic? Yeah, that's right. Or, or a financial crisis or, you know, what have you. And the, the host city contract with Sydney actually stipulated who could and could not cancel the, the games. And it did not allow either the city or the National Organising Committee to cancel the games for any reason at all. But it did give that power to the IOC. Vice President John Coates confirming the opening ceremony on July 23 will proceed even if Tokyo is under a state of emergency. And, and of course, that's exactly the case in Tokyo. You know, even though a large majority of the Japanese public did not want the games to go ahead, Tokyo couldn't cancel without being liable for billions of dollars. All of the uh, plans that we have in place to protect the safety and security of the athletes um, and the people of Japan uh, are based around the worst possible circumstances. It's, it's very tightly stitched up in favour of the IOC. And, and furthermore, had Japan cancelled... The IOC could have gone them for damages. And to cap it all off, if there's a dispute about the contract, any dispute at all, including about damages, it's not resolved in an independent court in the host nation. It's not? So where is it resolved? Where does it go? Well, well it goes to Switzerland. It goes to Lausanne in Switzerland, uh, where something has been set up called the Court for Arbitration of Sports. And that's essentially an offshoot of the IOC. And guess who's president of the court? None other than John Coates. Coates, I might add, also has a couple of roles in relation to the Tokyo Olympics. So, so it's an interesting thought. If, if the Japanese Olympics had been abandoned, we have Coates, who has official functions both with the Japanese organisation and also an adjudicatory role through the, the arbitration body in, in Switzerland. He is, in a sense, to use a sporting metaphor, in, in both the role of player and umpire. You know, they determine the rules and then if there's a dispute about the rules... 
they adjudicate the dispute as well. Right, okay. And so, Mike, why do countries keep putting themselves up for this then? Why does a city like Brisbane even want to host the Olympic Games? Because it seems like it's extremely risky. Well, it, it certainly is. I mean, there's there's a lot of cachet and I can see why people might think it, you know, might lift international global perceptions of their city. But at what cost? You know, the, the cost-benefit analysis of hosting the Olympics is, is mixed at best. There, there was a, a really good study conducted by uh, some people at Oxford University at the end of last year which found that the average sports-related costs, that's just the sports, that's not the other costs, of the Summer Olympics between 1960 and 2016 was more than $8 billion in Australian dollar terms. And, and that expense had rapidly escalated over recent games. You know, the, the 2016 Rio Olympics, for example, cost more than $18 billion. London in 2012 was $27 billion. And, of course, Tokyo is going to be even more than that. And, and these cost overruns, coupled with the fact that the host countries often bid for the games during good economic times but wind up delivering them in much worse times, have done just immense social and economic damage to some of the host nations. Of course, not all games go badly, but, you know, even in the case of those deemed successful, like Sydney, it's very hard to determine exactly what benefit is accrued to the host. I mean, how do you value things like national pride or, you know, the potentially changed perceptions of the host city in the eyes of the world, or the long-term consequences for tourism. There's all these other esoteric benefits that you have to take into account. These things have, have fooled governments in the past, but I think governments around the world are coming increasingly to the realisation that hosting the Games is, is a very, very expensive and risky business. You know, so look, I enjoy sport as much as the next person and I've been compulsively watching the Olympics this week as I languish in lockdown here in Sydney. But I also remember George Orwell's famous uh, description of the Olympics as war by other means. And in war, the only people who really benefit are the people who supply the weaponry. And, and I think in a way we can look at the Olympic committees as that. You know, they are the facilitators and they're making out like bandits off our nationalism. Mike, thank you so much for your time. No problem, thanks. Sloane Crosley is known for her funny and acerbic personal essays, but her new memoir digs much deeper to examine the loss of her best friend. Join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Sloane about Grief is for People. Find it wherever you listen. Also in the news today, New South Wales recorded 207 new local coronavirus cases on Monday. Of those, at least 72 were infectious while in the community. The state also recorded its 15th death due to the current outbreak. The Queensland government has extended the lockdown in the southeast of the state until Sunday, after the state recorded 13 new locally acquired COVID-19 cases on Monday. Ten of Monday's community cases are children younger than nine years of age. The community cases are linked to a growing cluster involving several Brisbane schools. And Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt has announced that the Pfizer vaccine will be made available to children aged between 12 and 15 who are immunocompromised starting from the 9th of August. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.